0: Good morning, everybody. I regret to say that we have a little computer glitch here, although I can see this beautifully on my full screen. You can only see it on that tiny screen there. We cannot figure out. It might be something to do with the Apple interface versus the PC interface. So could I just suggest that maybe everybody move up a little closer, because it will be kind of instructive to see uh, the slides. And if you'd like to see them afterwards, I'd be very happy to send them out to you. Again, my apologies for this little glitch. So, I, uh, the title, Dancing on the Grave of Obamacare, is a little bit facetious. I thought, in the interest of Halloween, we'd do something with the Halloween theme, um, but as you well know, uh, the Affordable Care Act, al- also known as Obamacare, is a, a highly politicized uh, law, and the uh, uh, grave dancing, if you will, that is going on now, uh, as we are on the eve of the election, is pretty pronounced. So what I'm going to do today is talk about uh, that aspect of it, the politicization of this law, but really trying to get beyond that to talk about what is actually happening, because there is a great deal of confusion about it. You're hearing a lot about soaring premiums. uh, You're hearing about uh, insurer bailouts gone awry, all kinds of things. And I'm going to try to get behind that and tell you a little bit more about what the reality is. And this is not to say that there are no issues with the law, because of course there are. There are some uh, uh, problems that need to be dealt with, as one would expect when one is making a very, very major change in a very important marketplace. Um, I've been in Washington now for about 30 years. It's without precedent that you would put in place a massive law like this and not come back several years later and make some technical changes in the law to adjust things, because that's just the way reality works. This law, unfortunately, has not been able to be dealt with that way because of the enormously politicized process. So there are things that need to be done at this point to make the law work better. We will see whether that happens. Okay, um, this is just a little cartoon that shows you that this dancing on the grave stuff has been going on for quite some time. This is just, as you can see, uh, some of you may remember when the exchanges in the law opened up in 2014. The Big exchange, uh, healthcare.gov, wasn't working. There were a lot of technical problems. And you can see even then there was uh, some rejoicing that, uh, that this law was not working. And as you can see, maybe you can see, I'll read it to you. Uh, you know, Obamacare and Secretary Sibelius, who was at the time the head of the Health and Human Services Department, aren't they dead yet? Uh, let's dance on their graves early. So this, this, you know, lest we forget, this has been kind of celebrating, has been going on for a long time. And right now, you're seeing lots of use of the phrase death spiral. The Obamacare exchanges are in a death spiral. Uh, If you Google death spiral Obamacare, you'll get about 10,000 separate entries on it. Uh, So that seems to be the new moniker for, uh, at least of the opponents of the law, what's actually happening on or this uh, this is from an uh, op-ed piece where it the lead of it is, will the last one out of Obamacare please turn out the lights? There's just a whole bunch of people who've essentially decided that this is all dead. Yep. Yep. Y- y- it, that would be very obvious, but it's not on, appearing on my screen. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the glitch part that we cannot uh, quite figure out. Yeah, so yeah, we've tried just about everything, Jim. But if you can figure it out, I'll <laughs> I'll buy you a a pumpkin latte at Starbucks. <laughs> uh, Whatever. will uh, as I say, I'm very happy to make the slides available afterwards. This I- you can see just a little cartoon on the right, Obamacare, it's shovel ready, you know, Graves, uh, that's a popular meme now on the internet. So uh, as I say, I'm going to talk not about all of that so much, but about the reality of what's behind Obamacare. This slide will be hard for me, for you to all to read, so let me just uh, s- give you the brief overview. If you think back, many of you will know this, but those of you who weren't down in the weeds on the whole creation of the Affordable Care Act, what was the Affordable Care Act designed to do? One was to take care of many of the uninsured in the country. We had at the time, before the law was put in place, we had somewhere between 42 and 45 million Americans uh, without coverage. I say Americans carefully, though, because a number of those folks were undocumented individuals. So you can argue with me whether they were Americans or not, let's just say they are here, right? And many of them probably here to stay. So more or less 30 citizen, 30 million citizens without health insurance and more or less 11 million undocumented people in this country without health insurance. And, of course, far and away the largest share of uninsured of any industrialized country, most industrialized countries, if they have uninsured people at all, it's 1% of the population, 2%, we were at about 16%. So, uh, the idea was, let's find a solution for those individuals. A lot of those people were left out of health insurance because they had pre-existing conditions uh, and they could not buy insurance on what was known as the individual insurance market. If you have a pre-existing condition and you're covered by your employer, you're pretty much fine. If you have a pre-existing condition and you had to buy insurance on your own, you could either buy it for everything except what you were sick from, or you couldn't get it at all, or you could get it at an astronomical price if anybody would agree to cover you. So that was the case for many of these individuals. Others were poor. Uh, the Medicaid program in our country historically has left out adults without dependent children. So we had about 7 million adults without dependent children, particularly in the South and the Southwest, who could not qualify for Medicaid, or they could if they had incomes below $7,000 a year. Then you were poor. If you were at 8000 a year, you were too rich to qualify for the Medicaid program in many of those states. So we had these di- big different groups of individuals who didn't have insurance for certain reasons and we had to tailor solutions for those different groups. So the solutions that people came up with were, first of all, we're gonna create a new individual insurance market where we're gonna make a number of reforms, we're gonna ban the exclusion of people for pre-existing conditions. Uh, we're going to create new places where they can go to buy insurance called exchanges or marketplaces. We're going to give the states lots of money to enroll these adults without independent without, without dependent children. Uh, and we're going to make a big dent in the uninsured problem. Nobody ever f- thought that the law was going to fix it completely. And in particular, there was never going to be any solution for the 11 million undocumented people. Just everybody, the political process just said, nope, we've got to leave those people out. It's too controversial to extend any coverage for them. So that was the basic plan and then there were pieces put in place around the law to make that work. Something called the individual responsibility requirement which means individuals being offered insurance had to buy it because you can't have a market work in insurance if you let people select into a market because they're sick uh, in which case only, you're only covering sick people. So it's like a fire insurance company only covering houses that are already burning, right? It's not gonna work. You have to get, you have to spread the costs across healthy people and sick people alike on the supposition that none of us really knows if we're going to develop a very serious illness someday. So we all agree to have insurance uh, for the worst possible events. Uh, so, But you had to compel people into that market, otherwise it wasn't going to work as a business proposition. So that was why it was put in place, this individual responsibility requirement with a, ma- with a penalty. If you don't, you can uh, you cannot buy coverage, that's okay, but you're going to have to pay a penalty. And the penalty as of next year for an individual will be at least about $700, uh, and it can be more uh, for, uh, for a family, uh, it can be up to several thousand dollars for a family. So there were lots of these different pieces put in place, and as that puzzle uh, graphic indicates, it all had to work together. If you started peeling off pieces of it, it wasn't going to work. If you took away the mandate and only had sick people sign up, all the insurers who came into this new market would go out of business. So that was the whole construct of the law. Um, just quickly, the other uh, key pieces—it was called the Affordable Care Act question is affordable for whom? Did we mean here affordable for individuals? Did we mean affordable for the nation? They are different questions. If you wanted to really make it affordable for individuals, since many of the people who you were bringing out of the program were low income people, that would suggest you would have to have lots of subsidies to help them buy coverage. You may know an average, uh, uh, employer-provided insurance policy now costs about seventeen or 18, dollars or $18,000. Well, if you're somebody who's below the median income in this country, which is about $56,000, the notion that you could somehow afford 20, 000, almost $20,000 for your health insurance uh, for your family is a non-starter. So we, had to, we knew we had to have subsidies in the law to help people buy it. The question is, how big are those subsidies? Uh, So, are you going to make it really affordable for poor people? If you do that, you're not going to make it so affordable for the nation because we uh, have to tax ourselves to pay for these subsidies. So there was always a tension in in the law, affordable for whom, and what the framers of the law decided is we're going to do a little bit of both. We're going to make it pretty affordable for individuals, maybe not maximally, and we're going to make it fairly affordable for the nation, not free but not as expensive as it possibly could have been. And that's a tension that has remained in the law ever since. Um, The other thing that we did in the law was put in place a lot of things to try to make our overall healthcare system more affordable. As you know, we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world, uh, more than twice the average uh, on a per capita basis of all the other industrialized countries. And we knew we had to come to grips a little bit with that, actually, we should come to grips a lot, but coming up with something that is politically non-controversial in that scheme is very, very difficult. And the one thing that the law elected to do was try to figure out a way to reconfigure our healthcare system a little differently, pay everybody a little bit differently so that we could incentivize a a lower rate of growth of costs and better quality healthcare at the same time. very, very complicated set of things put into the law to try to do that, which have had some success uh, and possibly will have more in the years to come. So what's happened because of the law? We're now uh, several years into the full-blown implementation of it. Uh, We've essentially got about 13 million people who come into these new markets to buy individual insurance. 21 million people total covered as a consequence of the law. So basically, as you can do the math, we've taken care of about half of the total uninsurance problem uh, if you're including the undocumented workers. If you leave the undocumented workers out of it and say, well, we were never going to help them anyway, uh, we've taken care of about two-thirds of the problem uh, just several years down the road. The uninsured rate in this country has now fallen to a historically low level. We've never had this this few uh, people, at least in percentage terms, uninsured in the country. And what has happened is that both public coverage, that is to say the Medicaid program enrollment has grown there dramatically by about 10 million individuals, and private coverage has grown. These people buying coverages through the exchanges That's also gone up. So when you hear the phrase government takeover of health care, just keep in mind half of the uh, the increase in coverage has been on the private side. We've put people into private health insurance plans with the aid of these subsidies. Okay, so that's the good news. What's left undone? Medicaid, the so-called Medicaid expansion. As I mentioned to you, we had to create this vehicle for people who were poor and near poverty to become uh, covered through the Medicaid program. When the Supreme Court uh, issued its decision in 2012 on the Affordable Care Act, it said that the Medicaid expansion would be optional for the states, not compulsory. And if you look at this chart, you can see a lot of blue states. You can see a lot of blue states (laughs) Oh. Look, <laughs> now, the <laughs> exactly, <laughs> the hardest working minister in the PowerPoint business. Thank you so much, Eric. That's great. Okay, much better. All right, so the um, blue states are the states that elected to expand the program, bring in these largely adults without dependent children. The, or the states that are orange did not do that. And you can see uh, most of them are most of the states that did not go along are in the south and some up into the to the west and northwest. Um, if, y- if, I get, if I showed you the map of the places in the country where people have the worst health, it's pretty much the same map. So what is sad about this is that the states in the country with the worst health decided not to take advantage of this uh, ability to expand their Medicaid programs. And what is also very odd is that the federal government was picking up the entire cost of this for several years and eventually it will phase down its contribution. But even uh, into perpetuity, the federal government will be paying 90% of the cost. So the effect of this is that we still have about 4 million adults largely in those states that do not have coverage. They, as I mentioned, they're they're in the states with the worst health status. About half of those individuals, it's estimated, have serious mental, uh, behavioral health issues, substance abuse issues, Um, and so. What's even more curious is that, to the degree those people get helped in those states, the states are pretty much paying that tab out of pocket. Uh, Political, it's political reasons. Hospitals in these states lobbied very hard to take the Medicaid dollars. Otherwise they have to pay for care for these individuals out of their charity care budgets. Uh, but it's it's basically been political. It's, it's uh, you know, we don't like Obamacare and we don't, you know, arguments that you'll hear from uh, governors are, well, that we could take the money today but the federal government could turn around two years from now and withhold the money. Well. You know, you could say the same thing about emergency assistance after hurricanes, right? Because most of that largesse comes from the federal government and the federal government could say no, but it's not particularly likely. So, uh, so it's a very politicized environment, but these four million uh, or so individuals are the ones paying the, the cost. All right, so that's where we are in the Medicaid side. If we talk about where are we on the, uh, insur- the uh, individual insurance side, and me- remember, as I said, we created these markets for I- individuals to come in and buy it, and now you're hearing a lot of uh, discussion about the average premium increase and how high it is, et cetera. So let's take a step back and uh, think about what happened here. Actually... It turns out that as soon as these new marketplaces were created, and there's one in Maryland, Maryland has one, DC has one, DC HealthLink, there's healthcare.gov for all the states that decided not to set up these marketplaces, actually premiums, individual premiums dropped uh, across the country, 10 to 21%. Why? Well, we created a set of competitive market mechanisms uh, that had not existed previously. And a lot of insurers took a look at that and said, hmm, this isn't, these are new markets. We're in the health insurance business. We could expand our business. Let's get into it. So you had this immediate competitive effect, and the premiums in that available net market dropped pretty sharply. Um, now, lots of other things happened, too. This was a complicated situation. Uh, you remember that I said uh, to make an effective insurance market, you really need lots of people enrolled. You need younger and healthier people as well as sick people because then you can spread the cost of being sick across this broad population. There was a concern about getting these younger, healthier people enrolled. They didn't come into these markets in the numbers that one would have expected. Why? Well, for one thing, for political reasons, the penalties started out being very low uh, for not signing up. So in the first year, if you didn't sign up for coverage, you paid a $95 penalty. Uh, so if you think, what? For the entire year. So that, and, and that was the penalties were made low because Congress was nervous about the penalties <laughs> being too high. So the penalties were low, and it, the net effect was it didn't have much impact on people who elected to stay out. And if you were a young, pretty healthy person, there's a whole group of people known as the young invincibles. You know, young men in their 20s who think they're never going to get sick and they're going to live forever. You know, you go, why should I? I don't need health insurance. I'll pay the damn $95 dollar penalty. Darn, $95 dollar penalty. Um, so that had an effect on it. Yeah. Through their employer, exactly. Right. If you. Get coverage through an employer. If you get coverage through Medicare, if you get coverage through Medicaid, you cannot buy coverage on the exchanges. Yeah. So this is just this group of people who had been frozen out of the markets previously. Now, um, so the net. So interestingly enough, of all the people that were thought to be eligible to buy coverage through this indi- new individual market and the marketplaces. Uh, the exchanges, only about 40% of the people who we think are eligible have signed up so far. Now this is going to change because the penalties for not signing up, as I said earlier, are growing. So who did sign up? Let's just imagine. So if you're an individual for years and you haven't been able to have coverage because you had diabetes or cancer or HIV AIDS, suddenly a new marketplace comes available, you can buy coverage, You get tax credits to help you buy coverage if you're below a certain income level. Guess who signed up? All of those people. So the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association has done an analysis of all of these folks who signed up for these plans in 2014 and 2015. And essentially, they have much higher rates of all these conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, HIV AIDS, heart disease, you name it, much higher rates than the general population of people covered did. And of course, why wouldn't you sign up if you suddenly could get coverage? Uh, And so as a consequence, their costs are about 20% higher every year to insure them than uh, the, the rest of the commercially insured population. So these people are sick. So what we ended up doing was taking some of the sickest people in our country who couldn't, many of them who could not have health insurance before, and we put them in the most expensive health care system in the world. Right? Because that's what we have. That's what has happened. And you can look at that and say, shame on us for giving these very sick people a ticket to be in the most expensive health care system. Or you could say, good for us (laughs) that we finally did this, because how could you have as costly a system as we had and as effective a system as we had previously and shut all of these sick people out of it. Uh, so that has been the effect of it. Now, that said, um, when we put, I'm sorry, was that a hand? Yep. There's no country that spends more than we do. The red is I'm sorry, I, I should have explained the red is the uh, average of the t- uh, of all the countries in the Organization of, uh, for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is essentially the large industrialized countries. So that's the average, and we're that tall blue line up at the left. We're the tallest, right So that's why we spend about double per person of the of the average of all these other rich countries. so. Oh, we have much, we, we're 29th on the list of life expectancy among all countries, yeah. So, uh, we, yeah, yeah, for complicated reasons. Uh, but as, as the, 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 the basic reason is, I think it's fair to say that we have a lot of problems that start much earlier in life, uh, but we, and l- unlike other countries who try to address those problems earlier in life, we kind of wait and we dump people into two places. We dump people into our jails and prisons if they're mentally ill, and we dump people into the healthcare system if they've got everything else. That's sort of the, the, the way the U.S. does it. <laughs> yes, and that's an I- issue. If we, we, we could have a whole other conversation about the so-called social determinants of health, which are higher incomes, better education levels, those predispose people to much better health and life, and we, we have issues there. So, um, so. Just a, a technical uh, observation: If you're trying to create a new private market where none existed previously, uh, and you don't know, and an, an particularly an insurance market, you know the number one thing that you w- you uh, that run makes insurance market. markets run is risk, right? It's analysis of risk. Why does, why will State Farm sell you an auto policy or a fire policy? They have actuaries back there basically calculating what are the odds, what is the risk that your your house is going to burn down or you're going to get into an auto accident, right? So it's all about calculations of risk. And what do we have to charge you uh, because we're probably going to pay some percentage of you for your houses burning down or are you getting into auto accidents or you be, being in an auto accident. So when you are starting up an insurance market, it's very commonplace to put in place protections for those people who are taking on risk, the insurers, to protect them in case you guess are guessing wrong about the risks. So some of you may know, uh, back in um, 2006, we opened up new uh, Medicare prescription drug coverage for individuals. We put in place something called risk corridors for the insurers coming into that market to protect them in case, because people said, well, we don't know. People on Medicare have never had access to prescription drugs that were paid for outside of the hospital. We don't know if the costs are going to explode. We don't know if The people are much sicker than we think, we just don't know. So what were put in place were these risk corridors, which basically means the government stepped in and said, insurers, if this is worse than we think, we'll pay you. We'll compensate you so you won't go broke. So the same mechanism was put in place in the Affordable Care Act for these insurers coming in to to sell insurance to these people who previously could not have one. Well, what happened? Congress, decided that these risk corridors, which they had agreed to put in place under a Republican Congress and a Republican president for the Medicare program, they decided that when a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress decided to put them in place for the Affordable Care Act, that this was a, quote, insurer bailout, not a necessary step to create a new market. So they cut off an avenue to create this set of supports in the risk corridor program. As a consequence, the money that would have been available to protect insurers was was greatly greatly diminished. And as a consequence, a number of these insurance companies have either withdrawn from the market. Some of them some of you may have who follow this closely may know about some new entities that were created called co-ops. Uh, the co-ops were depending on some of this money. They didn't get it, a number of them failed. So there was this cascading effect f- that basically caused this to happen, mainly out of politics. So that's been an issue. Uh, and as this cartoon suggests, uh, you know, there was a pretty concerted effort to dig the grave uh, on aspects of this, of this program, aspects of this policy. As I mentioned, the net effects several years later, so some of the large insurers have been in this market. They have these extremely sick people. They're costing a lot of money. They're not getting the money that they were depending on from the government to help get them through this period. They've pulled out. Uh, and some of them have been the very large companies like uh, Aetna, Humana, United, etc. In some parts of the country, even the Blue Cross Blue Shield pa- plans have pulled out. I was just in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago. You not, uh, Blue Cross of Tennessee has stopped selling insurance in the biggest cities in the state, Nashville, etc. They're just, they just, they've lost so much money uh, that they have pulled out. Now, the... Um, some companies have stayed in and actually prospered. Uh, these two companies you've probably never heard of, but they specialize in taking care of the Medicaid market. They've stayed in the exchanges uh, at, and they're still selling coverage and they're doing fine. Um, the net effect is that for uh, next year and the o- open enrollment period, people can start signing up on November 1st to buy coverage. You've seen a big shrinkage in the number of insurers participating in this marketplace. Um, most of th- Some states are down to just one insurer, either in the whole state or uh, in, in pockets of the state. Uh, and most of those states where the shrinkage has really occurred are in the southern and rural states. And if you think about it, so what's happened in those southern and rural states is, if you're in a, a state with not much of a population anyway, it's not that attractive a market. If you're selling in a rural area, it's an even less attractive market because there are even fewer people (laughs) to buy the coverage. Oh, and by the way, part of running a health insurance plan is negotiating arrangements with doctors and hospitals over what you're going to pay them. And if you're in a rural area, you don't have many hospitals and doctors to negotiate with, so you can't get a very good deal. So insurers in those areas were really squeezed because high costs, not that many people, no uh, assistance from the federal government or very little, and nobody to negotiate with on what the prices are. So you're stuck with high prices. Yeah. You, uh, as an insurer, it depends on the, th- the state law, but in many states, you don't have to sell coverage in every area of the state. You can pick your markets. By county, typically, yeah, by county. So, so if we look at uh, this, let's see, why is this map over on the side? Let me move this over here. this um, is? Well, I'll skip this, but if for the in this interest of time. But essentially, what um, you can see a little bit of the sense if you see. can see that some of these states are orange, and some are blue, and some are gray. So the the areas covered in orange are the places that are down to one or two insurers. And if I I could show you the rest of this map, you can see it's basically mostly southern, mostly rural areas. Most of the rest of the country has a pretty much more robust market, uh, even though the number of insurers may have shrunk. Maryland, I think there's still four or five carriers selling coverage throughout the state. Um, so m- most areas are better off, especially the very populous areas. And, and California, which has the biggest insurance exchange, about half of everybody who's bought coverage in these new marketplaces ha- lives in California and has bought in California. They have an extremely robust market there. So this is not by any means a, uh, a nationwide phenomenon. Now, The other thing is, despite all the talk about how high the premiums are, they actually, uh, up until this year, were 20% below the original projections. So that introduces another element to this equation. It basically says that when this market got started up, there was so much competition that insurers underbid on this business, and the prices were relatively low. And so it's only now for next year that the actual levels of premiums are catching up with what the original projections were. So the bottom line for consumers for next year is that almost three quarters of them are going to pay $75 or less per month for coverage because of the effect of subsidies plus the costs. the, the, ta- the subsidies, the tax credits, go up as the price of insurance goes up. So people actually end up getting more benefit through subsidies and tax credits as the prices go up. Um, m- about 80% of enrollees are still going to have a choice of at least two different carriers. And the carriers, the issuers themselves, uh, Blue Cross or whatever, offer multiple plans. So it you could actually have many more plans, even if you only have two carriers. You could still have 20 different insurance plans or more to choose from. And what the federal government has pointed out is if people will actually shop for plans and consider switching from one year to another, they could actually, on average, lower their premiums by 20%. So when you hear these sound bites, you know, worse, I heard a... Trump tweeted out yesterday, "Worst insurance ever." Really, <laughs> $75 dollars, uh, or less a month with uh, with uh, premiums. I mean, I work for I, mean I lead this uh, small nonprofit. We just got our our insurance increase for last for next year is 17. percent We're not affected at all by Obamacare, but so ours is going up 17. percent I would take this deal in a heartbeat. Um, and this just shows you the effect of it. I just pulled out the uh, ad, uh, from an analysis done by the uh, the uh, Kaiser Family Foundation. So I, I just pulled what w- would happen in D.C. next year and in Maryland if you are a 40-year-old non-smoker making $30,000 a year, and you can see that even though the, the premium goes up, just look at the numbers in the circle. This is what the actual cost would be for individuals. So this. 40-year-old non-smoking man making $30,000 a year in DC his monthly uh, price would have been uh, with the tax credit last r- this year 2016 $208 next year it will be $207 it goes down by a dollar mean you know in effect no inc- no change Maryland same thing person with the counting in the subsidies 208 bucks a month it will go down to 207 a month because of the subsidies going up even as the costs go up. And in D.C., uh, where there are, I think, about uh, 50,000 or so people buying coverage, including all the congressional staff who have to buy their coverage through this market, Um, you've got two big carriers, Blue Cross, which is the dominant provider around here, and Kaiser Permanente. In Maryland, you've got, uh, actually, it's it's, a the four, Care First, Kaiser Permanente, Cigna, and uh, the remaining co op here, Evergreen, which has just actually gone uh, for profit. Now, that's the premiums. Um, it is true that uh, a lot of people select plans that have very high deductibles. This is the so called, uh, these are the numbers for the so called silver plan. The plans are arrayed and named at different levels by metal level. So you can buy a platinum, which is super-duper coverage, gold, all the way down to silver. Uh, And the silver plans will have large deductibles. You can go online and choose a plan that has a deductible of $1,500 a year or all the way up to $6,000 a year. There's an out-of-pocket maximum. You never have to spend more than $7,150 or won't as of next year. So those deductibles are pretty high and they do create a problem for people who aren't uh, you know, anticipating a big uh, medical outlay and then suddenly get hit with them. They've got a, they're on the hook for about $6,000 uh, in some instances and that's a lot. You can alter that risk by buying a more generous plan but then your, your premiums are going up. So I don't wanna suggest that this is cheap <laughs> by any means It's not. Health insurance in our country is enormously expensive uh, and all of us feel the burden of that. It's also the case though that almost all the analyses show that without the Affordable Care Act, premiums almost certainly would have been a lot higher. Uh, I remember back in the 2000s when I was uh, doing a lot of reporting on this for the News Hour. Year after year after year, health insurance premiums overall were going up 20% a year, 18% a year. I mean, it just there looked like there was no end in sight. And we've been having much more modest increases since the ACA went into effect on average. It's only this year at where we're, we're suddenly coming back into the realm of what people were projecting all along. So what's going to happen going forward? Well, we know that as these penalties get higher, Uh, more people are likely to enroll in coverage, uh, and they have been over the last several years, notwithstanding this notion of a death spiral, et cetera. Enrollment in the exchanges is going up. Um, A lot of the insurance companies are saying, if we can just get a Congress that will fix this problem of these risk corridors and risk adjustment, we'll get back in Uh, the head of Anthem which which pulled back from a number of markets. Joe Swedish basically said, we're going to be profitable again in this market in a couple of years, and if Congress fixes this, we'll come back in. The head of Aetna said the same thing several days ago. You know, they want to come back into the market. They want Congress to step up to the plate and do what it has to do. So that really is the fundamental question. After the election, regardless of who is in charge, do people decide that they're going to fix this market and resuscitate Obamacare? Or do people say, no, we want to kill it. We really would prefer to go back to having 20 million people without health insurance coverage. Um, There are a lot of plans to, as the saying goes, stabilize this market going forward. the government says more and more healthier people are starting to sign up now that the penalties are getting higher, and they recognize that it probably makes sense for them to get health insurance, especially younger individuals. Some of you will know my 22-year-old son was diagnosed out of the blue a year and a half ago with leukemia. Where did that come from? <laughs> right? Stuff happens in life. Uh, so you know, having that protection, uh, is important for individuals, and as younger people, you know, get hopefully get a little bit older and get a little bit more educated, they understand they really should come in and buy coverage. Um, already within uh, its authority to do so, uh, the, the government is trying to deal with this risk problem. They're trying to compensate uh, some plans. Some plans end up with individuals who come into these new this new market, and they have you know, extremely serious uh, cancers or uh, uh, a combination of conditions. So CMS will now step in and give, offer extra protection. CMS is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They'll step in and offer e- extra protection if a plan has an enrollee who incurs $2 million in expenditures in a given year. So they're trying to do as much as they can without a, a, a statutory change to deal with some of these issues, but they really can't do enough. There needs to be some statutory change that uh, allows this market to uh, to go further. Um, there are also lots of ideas now circulating. Do we have to design benefit plans that are particularly attractive to young individuals? Uh, and if so, what would those look like? And how could we sell those products uh, with a big enough uh, marketplace to make those work financially. And another topic you're going to hear more about, particularly if Secretary Clinton is is indeed elected, is the public option. Uh, And this is a concept on paper at the moment. It doesn't really exist even in a formal legislative proposal. But the notion would be you'd have some kind of a plan that would be able to come into a market either nationally or just in these markets with very few other insurance companies in them and offer a plan that looked a lot like Medicare. Maybe even it would be Medicare, but she would create this additional option for people so that if they couldn't buy private coverage, they would at least be able to sign up for this public option. We'll see whether that idea goes forward. It's extremely controversial, uh, and if uh, the Senate and the House remain in Republican hands, it's probably not going to go anywhere. On the other hand, if there is a Democratic Senate, uh, maybe it has a chance, or maybe it uh, it will be a ne- negotiating tool to get more, uh, to get Congress to agree, well, if you don't want a public option, then let's make the private market work by dealing with some of these risk uh, adjustment uh, issues. So, that's the scenario that may or may not occur if Secretary Clinton is elected. If, uh, Trump is elected, as we know what he has said is that he wants to repeal the Affordable Care Act completely. Um, they, uh, he has a, uh, a, an idea that what we will do instead is create the ability for people to buy private coverage and deduct, it, deduct the premiums on their tax returns. There's no indication of whether there would be, w- they one presumes the exchanges would all go away. He hasn't clarified whether he also wants to roll back all the insurance reforms. So would we go back to an era where insurers could exclude people for pre-existing conditions? Probably because the marketplace isn't going to work if you dismantle the exchanges, dismantle the subsidies, except to make them deductible for people who have high enough incomes. There's really not, there are just a whole lot of missing pieces to Trump's plan that don't frankly don't really add up, and that's why they give uh, the, When Trump says these things, it gives health policy experts apoplexy because, it's n- their their ideas. Let's get rid of Obamacare without plans to actually replace it, unless you're just going to say, forget it. Twenty one million people, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> we made a mistake in giving you insurance for a few years, and let's roll it all back. So it's, it's, a, it's a problem. His the one solution that he has said, advanced, is we're going to let insurers sell insurance across state lines. Insurance is now primarily regulated at the state level. There is a layer of federal regulation that was put in place over the plans on uh, reviewing their rates, but basically insurers are regulated at the state level. So if you want to set up an insurance plan in Maryland, you've got to get approval from the Maryland Insurance Commissioner, you gotta have reserves in place, and you have to o- obey certain laws that Maryland has put in place. Saying, for example, if you're in Maryland, this, these things have to be an insurance policy in Maryland. Trump has proposed that, m- say, Maryland insurers could go down and sell their products in Tennessee, or in Florida, or by the, the reverse. Florida insurers could come and sell insurance in Maryland or DC, because that would create more competition. There's a potential problem which is, first of all, who regulates it? Uh, if I'm a, a consumer in Maryland and I buy a product that's regulated in Florida and the insurer goes out of business, do I have any recourse to go down? I have to go down to Florida and argue that the Florida regulator should have been minding this, this plant whatever it was doing in Maryland. Not really workable unless you put in place a whole new federal set of regulation over this. It's another missing piece of the details in the Trump sort of arrangement of how to do this that could be quite problematic. On the other hand, maybe he's got a whole bit plan, but he, he just hasn't shared any of it at this point. So where are we? Um, I want to draw your attention to, I think, probably the best study that's come out to date that looks puts all these pieces together and says what has happened with these uh, marketplaces. The marketplaces, the exchanges, are not working perfectly. I think that's clear. There are some real problems in some of these poor rural states and especially in the states that haven't expanded their Medicaid program. That's clear. Uh, The premiums are clearly on target with what we were expecting, even notwithstanding this big bump up in recent years. Lots of sick people got coverage. I was in Arkansas three weeks ago uh, and I was asking the people who run Arkansas Blue Cross Blue Shield what's happened. They said, we have a lot of people now who have coverage for their first time in their lives. They've never had health insurance. They uh, come in, they have lots of problems. They need knee replacements. They need, uh, they have diabetes that's out of control. We get them connected to physicians, we get them into programs, and you know what? A lot of them who've been out of work for years are going back to work. So I said, so you think it's working? They said, yeah, it's working. Uh, We really could use some more help on this risk These risk corridors and risk adjustment, and we really hope Congress gets its act together and figures this out, but yeah, it's working. So, that I think is in the final analysis a plan that's not perfect, that needs repair, uh, especially for a lot of the country. Uh, but what was the alternative, and what are we going to do going forward, I think is a, a fundamental question for our country as we contemplate this over the next several years. So thank you very much. I hope this was instructive. Enough. <laughs> not enough, not um, enough. There is this notion of the social determinants of health, and if you ask, uh, w- let's say you, let's normal life expectancy now is for men and women in the late 70s, right? Uh, nationally, uh, mid mid to late 70s. And if, if if you ask, so why do so many people die before their normal life expectancy nationally? And we know that that's the case. In fact, in um, about two thirds of the counties in the country, female life expectancy is falling, <laughs> not rising. At the, this point, it's just shocking. Um, why is that happening? The main drivers of that are not your access to health care. The main drivers are your education level, your income level, where physically where are you are you living. Are you living in a robust economic vibrant community where you can get a good job and have a higher income uh, are you living in Flint Michigan where you're drinking lead in your water are you living next to a toxic waste dump are you living uh, if, if you're a school child uh, is your school next to a busy superhighway so you're getting uh, pollutants in the air and exacerbating your asthma all of those things So if you put together the equation, you say how much of your health status in life is due to your access to health care, it's only about 20%. Your health status is largely driven by these other factors, your education, your income, where you're living, your behaviors matter greatly. Are you drinking? Are you smoking? Et cetera. And the the real issues arise when these things start to interact. So imagine, you know, living uh, in Flint, Michigan, on a lower income, struggling along on minimum wage, maybe you didn't even graduate from high school, um, that individual is also very likely to be obese, right? uh, Physically inactive, and so you get this constellation where things interact and drive down health status in life. Or a phenomenon that we've seen now is lots and lots of people dying in middle age. There was a big study that came out last year that showed that there were about half a million adults who died in middle age, mostly white, mostly low-income, mostly uneducated, largely in the South, uh, and basically what did they die of? Alcohol abuse, uh, opioid addiction and opioid abuse, and everything else. Lung cancer, because they they were smoking very heavily, lots of mental issues reported sub, sub, other substance abuse issues. So you, you what we're seeing is this just this huge sucking sound of decreased health for a lot of the population in, in particularly in areas of the country that are relatively speaking economically disadvantaged. Affordable Care Act the, the only thing that speaks to that was the Medicaid expansion and the fact that a lot of those people, Probably would be eligible for Medicaid in many states and are not, shows that some of them also are deprived of health insurance. Not all, but some of them are. Um, otherwise, we've got all these other issues that we've got to come to grips with. And I, you know, frankly, I would have thought the health of the public would have been a bigger issue in this election campaign than it is, particularly since we have declining life expectancy for so much of the population. Uh, what, what, what they're doing is m- much more social supports, you know, much, you know, and, and th- in the final analysis, we spend about twice as much on health care as we spend on social services, and most other countries do it the other way around. They spend twice as much on social services as they do on health care. Yes. We're going to wind up. Okay. Great. Thank you all very much.